You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. We're going to read together chapter 2, verse 10, and then all of chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we commit now our time to You. We trust that as we look at Your Word, that You are going to speak to us through the pages of Scripture. We know that we can have the confidence that when Your Word is rightly preached that your voice is truly heard, and so we pray that this morning as we study this together that you would be pleased to teach us and instruct us, and may your spirit be our guide, and may your word be our rule, and may your glory be our consuming passion. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have reached the midpoint of the book of Jonah, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. We have also reached a turning point in the book of Jonah, as it were, a turning point where Jonah is now given a second chance, a second opportunity, and a second commission. Jonah has been humbled. He has learned a lot and greatly in the belly of the fish. He has been humbled by less than ideal circumstances. He has seen the results of his disobedience. He has seen the fruit of walking away from the Lord. And now the Lord has chastened him and brought him back, as it were, to his senses. And now Jonah, having prayed and repented in the belly of the fish, God now commands the fish to vomit Jonah up onto dry land. Now somebody asked me a few weeks back, I think it was back at the end of chapter 1, somebody asked me the question, if Jonah had not repented until, say, six days or eight days, would God have kept him in the belly of the fish for that whole period of time? Or had Jonah repented earlier, would God have spewed him out of the fish earlier than the three days? That's a good thing to kind of toss around in your mind. At the end of the day, I can't say that I know the answer to that. It does seem, however, that there seems to be a very 
a close-knit chronology to it. At the end of chapter 1, three days, three nights, then Jonah prays, then God commands the fish. It seems as if those things follow logically one from the other. And that had Jonah repented earlier, God would have gotten him out of the fish earlier. But God knew that Jonah was not going to repent until after the three days and the three nights. And so the Lord kept him there and preserved him there until it was time for Jonah to repent. And then Jonah repented and then God commanded the fish and vomited him out. So we're looking now at Jonah's second chance, the second opportunity, almost like hitting a reboot switch. We begin chapter 3, but before we do, we have to deal with chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So we're going to look at this this uh, second chance that Jonah gets in three sort of stages or three scenes. First, chapter 2, verse 10, and we'll call this the regurgitation of Jonah. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, the recommission of Jonah. And chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the revelation to Jonah. The regurgitation, the recommission, and the revelation. Now that's a good outline, isn't it? You know that any time a sermon begins with the words, the regurgitation, that I have had a fun week. And I have had, because I think that in 12 years of preaching, I don't think I have ever had a sermon where one of my points was the regurgitation. Because there's just not a lot of passages in Scripture that lend themselves to this much fun. So, the regurgitation, let's look at that first of all, chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Now, this follows his prayer, this follows his repentance, this follows Jonah coming to the understanding that salvation is of the Lord. And idols are worthless, and idols are vain, and anybody who chases after idols forsakes the mercy of God, which could be theirs. But in the end, salvation is entirely of the Lord. And once Jonah understood that, then God commands the fish. Now, what is interesting to note is how God is involved in the fish vomiting Jonah up onto dry land. This is not portrayed to us as if this is an accident or a coincidence or the timing of it was just right. But it is God who has given credit for what the fish does. It is God who is seen as sovereign over the fish, just as He was sovereign over the storm, sovereign over the wind, sovereign over the waves, sovereign over the preparation of that fish and the arrival of that fish at the right place at perfectly the right time and the ability of that fish to swallow up Jonah and preserving Jonah in the belly of that fish. God is sovereign over all elements of the fish. Over the fish's life. Over the fish's course. over I don't mean course as in dinner. But over the fish's course through the sea. Over the fish's... See, you would be surprised at how many of these things just come to my mind that I, I actually cull out of the sermons. Sovereign over the fish's course through the sea. Sovereign over the fish's arrival at the land. Sovereign over the timing of the fish. Sovereign over all things pertaining to the fish. And the Lord commanded the fish, not in the sense that He spoke audibly and the voice heard, uh, the, the fish heard Him, but He commanded the fish in the same way that He commands the wind and He commands the hail and He commands the snow and He commands all the elements of nature. And this fish obeys Him. And I think that the author uses the words, the Lord commanded the fish for a reason. In the entire first two chapters of this book, there is only one thing or one person that has disobeyed the command of God. Who is it? Jonah. Everything else has obeyed God's every command and His every will. The wind obeys Him. The waves obey Him. The fish obeys Him. In chapter 4, the weed obeys Him. And the worm obeys Him. And this strong, hot, scorching east wind obeys Him. 
Everything in the book of Jonah obeys the command of God except for one person. Who is it? Jonah. It not that marvelous? Of all of God's creatures, it is the rational ones which disobey Him. All of God's irrational creatures obey His every command and do everything that He asks them to do and everything that He commands them to do and everything that He wills them to do. But it is we, us, disobedient creatures, rational creatures, who have the most to gain through obedience that disobey Him. The wind doesn't have anything to gain by obeying God. The fish doesn't have anything to gain by obeying its Creator, but it does. We, rational creatures, have everything to gain by obeying Him, and we are the ones that disobey. There's an intentional contrast there as to who obeys and who doesn't obey. So, the fish is commanded by God, and the fish vomits Jonah up onto dry land. And I love the plainness of that sentence. It is so vivid in my mind to picture it, but it's very plainly stated without all of the details and without all of the color that you and I might want to sort of add to that picture. It's just stated very plainly. The Lord commanded the fish. The fish vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Now, we don't know where this happened. Some people suggest maybe back at Joppa, the original port that Jonah left. Some people suggest a, a seaport which was closest to Nineveh where God would have had Jonah vomited up. It may have been likely somewhere along the eastern boundary of the Mediterranean Sea. It could have been in Israel. It could have been north, north of that. We don't know where it happened. Another thing that we don't know is if there was witnesses to this. See, I always wonder this. Was there witnesses to this? Was there people who saw this large fish beach itself and then vomit Jonah back right up onto dry land? Are there people who saw this? Now, some people suggest that there were witnesses who watched this happen and then they went to Nineveh and word of what happened to Jonah preceded Jonah to Nineveh. And so the people in Nineveh who worshipped the fishes and the fish god uh, had heard this tale of this legendary prophet who was swallowed by a fish and vomited out. And then when Jonah finally arrived there, since word had preceded him, that sort of helped the entire city fall into a state of superstition and they repented or turned to the Lord as a result of that. I don't think that's entirely necessary. I think it's possible there were witnesses. In my fourth year of Bible college, one of my assignments was to, to study the book of Jonah and then to present the book of Jonah, not as a sermon and not as a series of lessons, but to find some creative way of presenting all of the truths in the book of Jonah and the story of the book of Jonah other than just retelling the story. So I couldn't do a puppet show. I couldn't do uh, just reading the book. I couldn't do anything. I had to find some creative way other than just reading the story to, to tell the entire narrative of Jonah. So what I decided to do, I decided to, to write a news story as if it appeared in the front, front headlines, the front page of the, the Joppa Post or some newspaper, and to describe what happened through eyewitnesses who saw all of this unfold. And so then I was able to be really creative and kind of describe and interview these different eyewitnesses. And like one of them was a family who was vacationing uh, alongside the shore at Joppa and they were out enjoying the sun and the beach and, and the kids were playing with their little floating uh, toys and all of that. And up comes this fish and vomits this prophet soaking wet up onto the ground. And so I described all of that and it was, it was glorious. I don't know if there were witnesses or not. There could have been witnesses. It could have been just Jonah and the Lord right out on the sea, right out on the coast, being vomited up onto dry land. You can imagine with just a moment's reflection that this was not a pretty scene. Right? I mean, I described a few weeks ago the three days and the three nights and what that would have been with all the gastric juices and the seaweed and the, the half-rotting fish and the dead animals and maybe some of them were swallowed alive like Jonah. Um, 
shrimp and crabs and fish and flounder and creel and all that good stuff floating around with Jonah in there and sort of being digested alive and what that would smell like. And you can picture that, this animal beaching itself and just vomiting that whole puddle of stuff right up onto the ground. And this prophet is right there. And probably all kinds of slime and chunks and mucus and all that stuff. And and I I don't want to belabor this point. Actually, I do, but I won't belabor this point. But there is a, there is, you can picture the, the disgustingness of this whole episode. And this fish vomiting this prophet up there onto the ground in that big pool of whatever it was and the lesson that that had to be to Jonah. Uh, the stench of it would have been just overwhelming. It's enough to just turn our stomachs thinking about it. One last observation. Why do you chuckle before I even say anything? One last observation. Jonah was hurled into the sea by the sailors and he was hurled back onto the dry land as well. See, now you know I've had fun all week with that. Actually, one, there is one final observation. The, um, you know what happens when you, and I just want you to, I'm doing this for your benefit so that you can put yourself in Jonah's position. You know what happens, one of the things that happens to us before we vomit, before we throw up? You start to swallow a lot. You ever notice that? You swallow and you swallow and you swallow and you swallow and you swallow. What are you trying to do? You're trying to keep it down, right? You're swallowing and your stomach begins to churn and turn and slish and swish and slosh and kind of seize up. Jonah, if the fish experienced any of that, Jonah would have been inside for all of that. And then, and it had to be under pressure with all of that, pushed up that narrow esophagus right out over the tongue and onto the ground. Now we'll leave it. That's the regurgitation of Jonah. Second, the recommission of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm telling you. Now, in the past, I've always read from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and I've always pictured this happening immediately. Jonah gets vomited up, and immediately he stands up disoriented, his eyes still adjusting to the light, wiping this out of his nose, off of his mouth, out of his hair, and out of his eyes, trying to squint, and standing up in this pool looking to see which way is up and where is the water, because you want to run to the water and you want to get washed off as soon as possible. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah immediately and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. That's how I've always pictured it. And I've heard people teach Sunday school lessons and preach sermons where that's how it's presented. And as if Jonah stands up out of the pool of vomit and rushes off to Nineveh. And by the time he arrives at Nineveh, almost a two weeks journey from any place on the shore, by the time he arrives at Nineveh, he's crusted in this whale vomit and it's in his hair and it's all dried up and his, his clothes are all stiff and he shows up in Nineveh stinking like the inside of a whale. Does that sound at all realistic to you? I don't think it does. May I suggest something to you? It is possible that there is days, maybe weeks, perhaps months, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Is it not entirely possible that if you're like me, that you would run toward the water like a starving dog toward a piece of raw meat just to get washed off of the whale vomit? And is it not possible that Jonah got up, having learned his lesson, went back home, got his sacrifice, went to the temple, offered his sacrifice like he said he would do in chapter 2, paid the vows that he said he would pay in chapter 2, went back home to Gath Heifer, resumed his ministry, resumed his prophetic office, then chapter 3. Entirely possible. 
So I don't think, it's not my suspicion, that this commission came to Jonah fresh out of the belly of the fish. There is very likely, I think, a gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. What happens in that gap is not significant to the story. Jonah's not interested in telling us what went on. But it seems to me, at least, that there would be a gap. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I will tell you. And you'll notice that the wording sounds familiar. It sounds like chapter 1, verse 2, where Jonah is told, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. This is another commissioning of Jonah. He is being given a second chance. And the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a difference... Uh, it's, a, it's a difference, but not a difference with distinction. There's no different meaning here. Because some people have said, well, in chapter 1, it's arise and cry out against the city. And in chapter 2, it's just stand up and go proclaim to them. As if there's some difference and God has changed his tone, changed his message. It's none of that. It's a, it's a difference without a distinction. Jonah's message was to be the same in chapter 3 that it was in chapter 1. And that is, this city has sinned against the God of heaven and it's going to be judged. And that was the message that Jonah was to preach in chapter 1. And he tossed that away. And this is the message that he has given again in chapter 3. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And that's a typical prophetic way of, or a typical Old Testament, New Testament way of describing how a revelation would be given to a prophet of God. The word of the Lord came. It came in chapter 1. A lot of prophets introduced their oracles that way. The word of the Lord came to me. Or the word of the Lord came to so-and-so saying such-and-such. That describes not something that happens to you and I every day or any day. That is something that describes what happened to the prophets of God. Prophets heard from God. Prophets heard the voice of God. Prophets heard God speak. And Jonah heard the voice of God, not because God spoke to all of His people all of the time like that. Jonah heard the voice of God like that because God spoke through His prophets to the rest of His people. How do you and I hear God speak to us today? Not through the voice of the Lord coming into our subconscious or our brains, still small voice or some whispering in our ear or through the, the red bat phone. We don't get any divine direct messages like that. We get the voice of the God how? Voice of our God how? In the pages of Holy Scripture. He did in diverse times and in diverse ways speak through His holy prophets. And in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And He has spoken to us through those who heard Him, bearing witness with them both with signs and wonders. It is through the Scriptures that we hear the voice of God. So don't expect that the Word of God will come to you because it will not. And if you hear voices, you need to have your head read. You don't need to obey them. You need to have your head read. You want to hear the voice of God, you read Holy Scripture. The voice of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And Jonah got a second chance. Jonah's kind of known as the prophet of second chances. And he did get a second chance. But I want to, oftentimes we hear about Jonah, we say, oh, God's the God of second chances and the third chances and the fourth chances and the fifth chances and the sixth chances. God's the God of multiple chances. He's the God of 999 chances. And listen, God giving Jonah a second chance, a second opportunity, listen to this carefully, is something that we would expect from God. But it's not something we should expect from God. You understand the difference between that? It is something that when we see it in Scripture, we've come to say, we, should, we could, we'd expect that from God. Because our God is gracious. He delights in taking the Moseses and using them. He delights in taking the Davids, men after his own heart, and using them even after a moral failure. He delights in taking the Abrahams and the Peters and the Jonas and men like that, men and women like that, and using them and giving them second chances. God delights in that. 
He's a gracious God and a good God and a God of forgiveness and a God of grace. And He delights in doing that and displaying His glory and displaying His grace and displaying His immense forgiveness for all peoples and all times. God delights in doing that. And we would come to expect that from God. But we should not expect it of God in the sense that we should demand it of God or think we have a prerogative or a right to expect that from God. And that seems to be the bent of modern day evangelicalism. Some guy makes a train wreck out of his life, morally, and out of his ministry, and out of everything else, and then he just hits the reboot button and says, hey, God's a God of second chances. I'll just do the Jonah thing. Friends, do you realize that there are times when God gives us one opportunity, one chance, and He is not obligated to give a second chance? There's examples of that in Scripture. Saul. He disobeyed the Lord. And what did God say? That's it. You're done. I'm taking your kingdom from you and I'm giving it to one who is more worthy than you. No amount of pleading, no amount of begging, no amount of work, no amount of effort could alter that plan. God said, no, that's it. You're done. You're done. It's over. You had your shot. You disobeyed me. I gave you a command. You get no second chance. You get no grace. That's not it. It's not that forgiveness is not granted. It's not that God doesn't love anymore. It's that you had your opportunity. And in the and Sapphira didn't get a second chance. Achan didn't get a second chance. There's a lot of people in Scripture that did not get second chances. We might expect it of God in the sense that it's in keeping with His character to do such a thing. But we can't expect it of God as if, hey, everybody gets a second chance for anything, anytime that you blow something. That's not true. Do you get a second chance at marriage? No. you get a second chance at raising your kids? No, you get one shot at that. There's things that we have in life where we're given one chance and that's it. And when we blow it, God is not obligated to hit the reboot button and say, okay, here's another opportunity. When He does, it's grace. It's grace. But we have no demand on that second chance. That's why Paul says, I beat my own body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself should not become disqualified. He could be disqualified and Paul knew it. And he knew, I, did not, I do not want to mess up my one shot at this stewardship, this grace, this ministry that I've been given. So Jonah is told, go to the city of Nineveh, the great city. We're going to talk about what that means just in a second. The great city. And proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Proclaim to Nineveh the proclamation that I am going to tell you. That was the role of an Old Testament prophet. And that is the role of a New Testament teacher or preacher. To proclaim the proclamation which God gives. Nothing less and nothing more. An Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet was commissioned to go and to speak the Word of God to the people of God. Not to add his own thoughts. Not to add his own interpretation. Not to add his own musings or anything of himself. He was to simply teach what God had already said. That is the role of an Old Testament prophet. That's the role of New Testament pastors, teachers, preachers, Sunday school teachers. To simply teach what God has already said. And not to add, oh, and and the Lord spoke to me in my head and He gave me this. And this is how I feel about it. And this is how I think about it. All of that is just bonkers. Keep it out of there. And I'll leave that now because you know I could take that dead hobby horse and beat that for quite some time, but I won't. And you're welcome. So, on to the, re, the recommission, or the regurg, no, we did regurgitation, recommissioning the revelation that is given to Jonah. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, I love this. God said, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. And Jonah did what? Got up and he went to Nineveh. Now why do you think he did that? 
Give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Do you think that it was love for Ninevites that prompted Jonah to go to Nineveh? Was he just so thrilled with the opportunity to bring the message of good news to the Assyrians? Those bloodthirsty, wicked, idolatrous, pagan, heathen, Israelite-hating Assyrians. Was, was Jonah just so burdened? I feel the Lord calling me in my heart to go to Assyria. I just feel so burdened to share the good news with Ninevites. Is that why he went? You know why Jonah went? Because he did not want to find out what the sequel to the fish entailed for him. Jonah is not obeying out of a love for Ninevites. He may be obeying out of a love for God. He may be obeying out of a love for God. But chapter 4 indicates that it certainly was not a love for the people that he was going to preach to that caused him to go to Nineveh. That's not why he's obeying. That's why we titled chapter 3, The Reluctant Prophet. He's obeying, but it's a very reluctant obedience. To be honest with ourselves, we have to admit that there are times when we obey the Lord that we don't like it. Right? All of us do. I'm no different. There are times when we do things for the Lord or we obey God's Word even when we don't enjoy it, even when we don't love the obedience, even when we don't want to, against our own inclinations, against all of our own desires, and against all of our own, sometimes our own wisdom. But there are times when we obey out of duty and not out of love. Now you say, is that wrong to obey out of duty and not out of love? Well, if it's wrong to obey out of duty and not out of love, then what are we supposed to do when we don't want to obey? Disobey? We still are to obey, right? Now granted, it is a higher good to obey out of love and to love the obedience itself. And to obey out of a love for God and a love for His Word and a love for His glory and a love for the act of obedience. That's the higher good. But there are times when we obey and we obey not because we want to, but because we have to and because we know that we need to. We have been given a stewardship. We have been given grace. And we are told to obey. And when we obey... And we don't love the obedience, we're obeying out of faith and not out of feelings. Obedience when we don't want to obey is obedience in faith that says, I believe this is for my good, I believe that God will be glorified in this, and I believe this is the better thing to do. Even though I'm not inclined to do it, and even though I don't want to do it. And sometimes it's important to remember, oftentimes the love of obedience follows the act of obedience. If you wait until you love the act of obedience, you may wait a long, long time before you obey. You don't want to do that. Oftentimes we obey in faith, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes like Jonah, not out of the highest and purest motives and the highest and purest heart condition, but sometimes we obey in faith and then having obeyed, that's when we begin to love the obedience. And sometimes the love of obedience follows the act of obedience. Jonah's obedience was a reluctant obedience. It wasn't out of love for the Ninevites that he did this. Simply out of a, I guess you could put it this way, his desire to go to Nineveh was slightly greater than his desire to find out what the sequel entailed. And that's it. Nineveh or part two? I'm going to go with Nineveh. This has to be the lesser of two evils. And I think that's what Jonah learned in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the word says, So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh 
was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Exceedingly great city has to, has to do not with its greatness. It's not, Jonah's not describing here, hey, this is a great place to live. This is a great city. This is the oldest place where you're going to take your family on vacation. No, if you loved idolatry and debauchery and wickedness and fornication, all kinds of immorality and all kinds of violence, then hey, Nineveh was a great city. Type of place you love to visit, type of place you love to stay. Stay the night in Nineveh. It's a great city. But that's not the way that great is being used. Great here is describing not its moral quality. Great here is describing two things. Number one, its significance. And number two, its size. It was a very significant city. Assyria was the world's lone superpower. This was the center of Gentile occupation, world dominance. Assyria was the, the, the up-and-coming kingdom. Babylon was centuries away. The Medes and the Persians were centuries away. Rome was centuries away. Assyria was it. And Syria was a significant city. The center of all Gentile commerce, industry. It was the capital of everything. It was a very significant city. But it was also great in terms of its size. Nineveh was an enormous city and it incorporated not just Nineveh as the city itself, but also all of its administrative districts. So there were suburbs to Nineveh. And ancient writers referred to Nineveh not just of, as the city itself, the city boundaries, but all of the area surrounding Nineveh. It was called the Assyrian Triangle. And there was Rehoboth-Ir and there was uh, Nimrod and there was Rezin and there was Nineveh itself. All of them together, all incorporated together. And there was walls around all of this complex known as Nineveh. Historians say that the perimeter, the circumference of the city of Nineveh and its walls was, conservative estimate, 60 miles up to 90 miles around. It was an enormous city. Walls were 100 feet tall. The walls were wide enough that three chariots could ride abreast around the top of this wall. And there were 1,500 towers around the city of Nineveh. It was an enormous complex. It was huge in its size. Chapter 4, verse 11, God says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which are 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? And most people believe that's a reference to just the children. Just the children in the city of Nineveh. 120,000 children. That would put the population somewhere between 600,000 and a million people. In one city. The circumference of which is between 60 and 90 miles. That is, a, that is an enormous city. That's why it's called the Great City. That's two-thirds of the population of the state of Idaho. The state of Idaho has a million and a half people. Two-thirds of the population of the state of Idaho in one city. That's the population, just to put this in perspective, of Seattle and Portland combined. Put those two cities together and build a wall around it. That was Nineveh. Portland and Seattle each have about 500,000 people in them. An enormous, an enormous city. It's the great city. And you are to go to it and you are to proclaim what I will tell you. So Jonah gets up, verse 3. He arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It was three days' walk. That refers not to the distance between where he was vomited up and Nineveh itself. It's not three days' journey. The three days' walk is Jonah's description, and this is how they would measure cities. The city was an enormous city, a three days' walk. That meant if you started at one place and you went around the outside of the city, it would take you three days of traveling to get back to where you started at. Right? 60 to 90 miles, 20 to 30 miles in a day, which is what an average traveler would make. It's three days' journey around the circumference of the city. That's what he's describing. So Jonah got up, and on the first day, he began to go throughout the city one day's walk. That means he's the good portion of one day's walk into the city. And Jonah found a place that he could preach. And so he began to proclaim to it. At some point in wandering in there, maybe it was outside the palace of the king. 
Maybe it was in a marketplace like Paul did in Acts 17, where he went down into the marketplace and began reasoning with people. Maybe it was an open colonnade type of place where he could get out and get a crowd, maybe in the temple of their God, where crowds would gather. But Jonah went in and he began to proclaim, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He gives them a time limit. 40 days from today and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now that is not to suggest, that, that phrase, not to suggest that that's all Jonah said. Don't think in your mind that Jonah walked into the city, said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and turned around and walked out. Verse 4 simply describes the content. If you were to summarize Jonah's message, verse 4 is the content of his message. He was announcing their destruction, and I think it's safe to assume that if God was sending Jonah there, and Jonah was obeying the word of the Lord, as the text indicates that he was, that there was more to Jonah's message than just those words. Jonah would have gone in and he would have said, here's your sin. Here's what you've done is wrong. Here's why God is going to judge you. I'm a prophet from the nation of Israel. Jonah probably did this for several days inside the city. One day's journey in, he began to proclaim that message, and he preached that message, and then he left. And he did it, I think, adequately everywhere God wanted him to do it, as many times as God wanted him to do it, and as many different places as God wanted him to preach. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The word overthrown means to be turned up on its foundation, to literally destroy down to nothing, to wipe it clean. It's used of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. It will be completely destroyed all the way, utterly, completely to its very foundation. It will be raised. It's going to be gone. you think Jonah enjoyed giving that message? I think, and I just, I'm judging from chapter 4, I think Jonah was hoping that that prophecy would come true. I think he suspected, suspected that something different was going to happen. But he was hoping that that prophecy would come true. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That warning itself is a warning of grace. You know why? Because God could have just destroyed them without any warning. But the Lord has bent over backwards to send this nation a prophet and a warning because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight. His heart does not love judgment. He must judge, and His justice loves judgment, and the righteous love judgment, and judgment is good news. But God does not rejoice over and delight in the death of the wicked. His desire was to save this entire city. That's why He sent a prophet to them. And any time God executes judgment on the earth, whether it's in Nineveh, or the land of Canaan, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or on Jerusalem, or Israel, or Babylon, or the Medes and the Persians, or the Romans, Anytime God executes judgment on a people or on a nation, listen, it is always just. It is always the right thing to do. It is always good news to the righteous. Why? Because the justice of God has been vindicated. It's always good when God judges sin. Always. And He's always right to do so. Because He's not obligated to warn us. He's not obligated to turn us from our wicked ways. He's not obligated to show grace. He's not obligated to turn us. Or to, or to forgive us. But he does anyway. So the message that Jonah preached was a message of grace. It was a good thing that Jonah went. And it shows the goodness of God toward people who did not know him and did not love him. That God would love them enough to send them a prophet. Well, that's the regurgitation, the recommission, and the revelation. And I still like that outline. It just never gets old. For some of you, it got old a long time ago. But I like it so much, I might even use it next week. So let's bow our heads and we will pick up next week with the repentance of this city.
Our Father, we thank You that You are just and good. We thank You that You are holy and righteous and true. We thank You that You have chosen to turn sinners from their wicked ways and that You delight in saving and forgiving and extending grace. And we thank You that we have been the recipients of that grace and that You have stooped to save us, that You have stooped to show us mercy. We thank You for that wonderful truth. And we ask, God, that You would impress upon our hearts how good it is that You will someday judge sin and You will someday someday set everything right and make everything right as it should be. We thank You for who You are and Your goodness to us in Christ. And we bless Your name as Your people who have been saved and redeemed and forgiven. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.